Live above the noise. The Choiceful Family Project. Welcome to Live Above the Noise, the Choiceful Family Project. I'm your host Wayne Yurcha, and this podcast is a step-by-step action plan to help parents protect and prepare their children for the future. Thank you for joining us. This is episode number seventeen, and I'm here with my podcast partner, developmental and educational psychologist and kids media expert, Dr. Rob Ryer. And if this is the first episode you're listening to, we want to tell you that each episode builds upon the preceding ones. So to get the most out of the episodes, we suggest that you listen to them in order. Also, as a guide for you, episode one through eight provide important foundational information. And starting with episode nine, we begin to introduce specific tools and strategies designed to help you protect and prepare your children and family for the future, with the inner IQ being introduced in episode 12. And we really do recommend that you listen to all the inner IQ episodes if you can, because the inner IQ is an essential framework that parents can use to help understand and guide their children's healthy development. And we'll be going into that more as we go through these episodes. Now, last time we talked about inside communication or what we call me communication. Now, today we are going to explore another dimension of the inner IQ, and that is we communication. And in particular, we're going to focus on how parents can use something called indirect communication to connect with their children better. And once again, we are fortunate to have Adrian Principe, the founder of Turning Life On, joining us. So let's get right to it. Rob, to start, what do you want to tell us about we communication? Yeah, so on the uh, we communication, uh, what we're going to tackle today is uh, we know about outside communication. We've talked about it in a number of podcasts about what's going on with pulling us outside ourselves in our interpersonal skills. But want to emphasize today something different about we communication, which is the indirect style of communicating. And that's something that is a little more tricky and a little more difficult and new to a lot of parents because obviously you have to take the direct method to get things done as fast as possible. But when you get into trying to maximize some kind of inner sense of who a child is and have them develop their inner communication skills, there's a we communication technique that is based on um, a couple guys, Miller and Rolnick, wrote a book called Motivational Interviewing. And basically, motivational interviewing was all about how do you do indirect communication in a way that supports whoever you're communicating with through the questioning techniques. And really, it has to do with creating change. And I know these guys worked with very tough kind of individuals that were highly resistant which would be parallel to a lot of kids and especially older kids that are teens and they're headed into that phase of establishing their own identity and they they can perceive things as being impositional against them if you ask them questions in a direct way. So the idea of motivational interviewing is to say, how do you get kids or adults to change based on their own perception of what isn't working within them? but do it in a way where 
you don't offend them at all, but you pinpoint the dissonance or the difference in how their thinking is working, which I know a lot of parents do intuitively anyway. You know, good parents know how to do that. But their technique is broken down into five different steps. Number one, start with self-perception and intrinsic motivation. So move into the place where the child is understanding what motivates them. And so that's why when we use the motivational theater and the entertainment technique, we go into that place of story and what stories do you love and why do you love the stories and what's intrinsically motivating and who is your favorite character, the things that we've discussed before. And then secondly, move into personal preferences, which is part of that. And then at the same time, begin to create with your skill dissonance in the perception that the child currently may have. So what you're really doing is you're saying, I'm on your side, I'm your partner, and you do that through empathy, obviously, and being part of the the situation. And then you begin talking about something that is critically important to the child, but at the same time, head for where maybe their short-term goals and their long-term goals don't match, or where there's dissonance or disconnect between what they're saying and what actually makes sense in the world based on the parenting experience, and then be able to get them to figure that out by asking them the right questions and roll with the resistance that shows up, which will show up. But if it's done in a way that's gentle, supportive, empathic, and avoids argument and direct confrontation, The idea is to get them uh, to be able to support their own self-sufficiency by having them discover what's going on that doesn't quite make sense with what they thought was going on. So it's a five-step kind of motivational interview process that they developed. And I've changed it on my end to something called the Elevation Inquiry. So the five steps then again are, number one, express empathy. Number two, develop the dissonance or the disconnect. In other words, use what a child doesn't understand yet, what they're disconnected from in terms of their own understanding. Use that, but don't abuse that in a way where you confront that. You do it indirectly by having them discover the disconnect. The third step would be roll with the resistance, however it comes about, and it will. And then the fourth step is avoid at all costs any kind of argumentation, I'm right, you're wrong kind of perspective. And then the fifth step would be to support whatever is uncovered about where that dissonance or disconnect lies in the child's own thinking. So it's a five-step indirect process takes a little bit of learning and work to master it. Is there a way or a time when you would use this, or is it just in general when talking to kids? Well, if we put the pieces together of what we're already talking about, we're, we're, we've been saying that number one, the number one issue here is going to be start with time design. Start with understanding E-time and I-time and, and build an E-time, I-time perspective into your relationship with the kids and make that time special. So the last podcast, 
we were involved in. We talked a lot about, you know, the, the space to create a special space, a me communication, and what your, your children are thinking about and their favorite characters. And we talked about how that can work in order to facilitate me communication. So we've been at that space. Now the question becomes, okay, if time then becomes the most important initial step to set up e-time and i-time, can you do that first and make that a priority in the family dynamics so it's a special type of time? And then begin to devote that special time to the right motivational interviewing steps or techniques or open questions or empathic support within that special time. That's a good starting place to begin to know how to structure it more and get the child familiar with it. So that that would be my suggestion on how you start the processes is with a special type of time. Then it becomes over time uh, familiar and something that a, that a child can just expect, like that mom or dad will be asking questions in a different kind of way. And so you can build it into your, your strategies over the long term. This is making the most of the time that you have with your kids, right? So, so going through this process is really making the most of the time that you have with your kids because it seems like in our day-to-day lives, we're so busy. But I just think like any time that you're spending quality time with your kids, you could be making the most of it by going through this process of, you know, talking to them about what's going on in their lives, showing empathy, you know, helping them to understand the situation. I think one of the key things on this technique is to uncover where the dissonance is in the child's thinking, where they can discover, you know, within their own thinking at a a more immature age, what it is that their thinking works. But with the right questioning, you can get to the fact that maybe there's another way to do this, or have you thought about, or, you know, I know a friend of mine or uh, someone else that I know, or another child did it a different way. And what do you think of that, you know, like uh, as an alternative strategy? And so on this particular technique, instead of saying, no, you're wrong, that's not right. You know, it's it's the indirect approach to having the child discover what it is that they're thinking that may not be as good as another thought. Right. So I can th- I'm just thinking of something because I was setting the kids up for what they were going to do for 2 hours while I was busy. And you know, I wrote down a little schedule for them and one of the items on the schedule was that, you know, they're going to have lunch and clean up and then it's the summer. And they have math packets and reading that they're supposed to be doing. And sorry to admit, but we haven't been very good about keeping on track with that, of course, because it's summer and and we're going to the beach and bike riding and hanging out with friends and cooking out. And yeah, so we haven't been spending as much time on summer work as we should be. So I thought today was a good opportunity for them while I was busy for them to work on their summer work and my Actually, my 11-year-old who's going into sixth grade said to me, I don't understand why I have to do this math packet. It's the summer. I'm supposed to have a break from school. I'm supposed to be, you know, having fun with my friends and I don't want to do schoolwork. Um, And 
up until this point, I'd just been saying to him, well, you have to do it. They're going to expect you to pass it in when you get to school. And he just wasn't, that wasn't enough for him. Mm -hmm. So I actually said to him um, this morning when we were talking about this, and I actually went through this process as I'm now thinking about it. So I said to him, I understand it stinks. I don't, I understand. I don't want to do math work in the summer and I don't want to make you do the math work in the summer. This isn't fun for me to have to be constantly reminding you to do your math homework, but it's important that you do the homework because when you go back to school, it will be fresh in your mind. If you don't do your math over the summer, when you go back to school in the fall, you're not going to remember and you're going to be behind the other kids. It's going to be harder to catch up. You're going to have to spend more time on your homework. And it's really important that you do well in school. If you want to have nice things, if you want to go on vacations, it's important that you do well in school so that you can get a good job in the future. And I think that, you know, he kind of was looking at me like, okay, you know, I do want to go on nice vacations. Mm -hmm. I do want to ski and do the fun things that we get to do when I get older. So I don't know. He seemed, maybe he was tired. He seemed to be more agreeable to doing the math homework. I mean, we'll see. <laughs> but he definitely was not arguing with me. He definitely wasn't as confrontational as he's been in the past about it. And I could tell, like, the gears were turning in his head. He was looking at me like, hmm, she might have a point here. Yeah. Another way to think about that is if you keep in mind the child's short-term goal and long-term goal, just those two things, like, what does my child want with this math class in the future? What's his long-term goal when he does go back to school? Well, to get a decent grade and to be fairly successful in, in that particular thing. And then what is my short-term goal? Uh, my short-term goal is not to do any math homework. I don't want to do it right now. Okay. But that discrepancy between their own short-term goal and what they really are looking toward happening in the future is where the dissonance usually lies. The disconnect usually lies. So a question like, what do you think would happen uh, when you do go back to school if you didn't do any math homework? Forces in an indirect way the child you know, to look at, uh, well, I don't want to do it now, but ooh, mm, maybe I'll get, oh man, yeah, I could get really in trouble at school or I could not look good or for something like that. So that short-term, long-term place is where the disconnect usually is in the thinking process. And if you ask about it, they can discover it. You were pointing it out, which is great. And that's more direct than saying, what do you think would happen if you didn't do the homework and you went back to school unprepared? So having the child determine what the consequences of their actions may be if that behavior continues is part of indirect com communication then. Is that right, Rob? Yeah, it's a stronger stronger learning experience. They have to figure it out. I mean, if, if the parent tells them this is going to happen, that's going to happen, and this may happen, they may get that direct approach also. But if they have to go through the intellectual inside communication exercise of figuring out what could happen. There's more work to be done. It's better for the training of the inner communication and they will learn deeper and it'll stick in a different kind of way also. Which this reminds me, we talked about in a previous podcast um, about how my daughters, one's 12 and one's six, weren't getting along and 
I had been telling my older daughter that my younger daughter really looks up to her and she has an opportunity to be nice to her. And if she's nice to her, she will just really be happy about their relationship. And and I had been telling her that, but when I gave her a book to read about it, about a relationship between a big sister and a little sister, she understood it better than when I was just telling her. So this is another, you know, it reminds me of that situation. This is another indirect way to get kids to kind of figure it out on their own. And I think also in the future, you know, as they get older, this is a skill that they have to develop. So when we're adults, there's no one telling us, oh, you have to get up out of bed in the morning and go to work. We start to do this on our own. Okay, well, what happens if I don't get up and go to work? What are the consequences of that? So if we can teach kids this skill at a young age through modeling, which is really what this is. Okay, so what do you think will happen if you don't do your math homework or what do you think will happen if you're nice to your sister? You know, it kind of gets them thinking about it on their own. Right. So keeping in that in mind, let's say a parent has a child and they don't want to do their homework. Obviously, we might get to the point you have to just say you got to do your homework. But Rob, if you wanted to start with indirect communication and try to find this in a way that wasn't confrontational, mm-hmm. perhaps you could go through those five different methods with us. A child doesn't want to do their homework and name them for our listeners again so that you understand as you're going through those steps. Yeah, so first step would be if you don't want to do your homework, so start with being empathic about what's going on, how you're feeling, what, what's that all about. So step one is always expressing empathy indirectly, not a direct confrontation about the homework. Learning how to interweave the direct and indirect, but especially if you can start with the indirect. I'm on your side. If I was your age, I wouldn't want to be doing the homework either. There's other things to do. And this is a huge issue because of what's going on in the digital world with, you know, smartphones and entertainment. So you're essentially comparing, uh, I could either be doing my homework, which is what we're discovering when we talk to teachers, or I could be watching something or being on social media. So now the shift has created a whole different motivational factor. And so expressing empathy is going to be even more necessary, but also more difficult to get the job done because the payoff is biological to kids now on you know getting a dopamine rush and getting excited by watching entertainment as opposed to something that they may feel in a negative way, especially if there's implications from school that I don't do very well when I do my homework in this particular subject. But still, step one, express empathy about what's going on with you. That may open up the possibility of it doesn't get me anywhere. I don't like it. I'm not good at this subject. So that could be an area on the first step that opens the door to a different discussion about what's going on with homework, what's going on with school, what's going on with the feedback at school. Could you admit, for example that you as a parent (laughs) didn't like doing homework when you were young either? Or, you know, use a story or something along those lines to build that kind of communication? Sure, sure. So yeah, expressing empathy is, is important and showing your own past behaviors is important also. Okay, so now you want to discover where the disconnect is. You know that the child's short-term goals are to not only be good at something, but be good in school and to make their parents proud. So that's all something that's inherently part of their short-term goal. And if you say, well, let me have you discover what your long-term goal is, 
by understanding what it takes to be good at school and what steps are necessary. That disconnect in there can be explored. You know, like, can you think you can get to something good in school if you don't do your homework? What could you do instead? What are the steps that they want you to do at school as opposed to the steps that you want? Do you think those are the right steps? Do you think they have something that they know that you don't know? What might that be? What might it take? How long do you think it takes to develop mastery of subjects and be good at school? There's a ton of those questions that can open up the disconnect between I don't want to do my homework and I need to do my homework. So discovering that, what those things could be and letting the child discovering that disconnect would be one of the keys. That would be the second step. And then you're going to get resistance. So then you roll with the resistance. Yeah, I understand what you're saying. I understand how it feels for you. I understand what you want right now. I understand that. I understand that. That's that's the third step. And don't get into the argument yet, which is the fourth step. Avoid the argument and the direct communication, which is really coming down on on the whole process you've already initiated from the, the empathic first step. Now, when you get down to that fourth step and you're still getting resistance, try to stay with the empathic approach as long as you can and add momentum to the questions that you're already asking and avoid taking the position yet and keep working on the shifting the child's perception from the inside, from their perception. And that would be the thing that you would shoot for would be your goal in the fourth step. And then the final step would be to move them into that shift so that they understand what's happening in their own head about what they do want and what they don't want and how that's working between what they think they're going to be able to do and what the consequences of that is. So those are the five steps. And now if none of that works, there may be an issue with, especially if it hasn't happened in the past, where empathy is not something that a child trusts based on past experience with their parents, where, like, for example, um, many, many parents will start out empathic, you know, and I'm on your side. Then as opposed to taking the whole process through and trying to work it through as long as they can, when they are discovering all the resistance that shows up, they go off too quick. I told you to get that done. No. You know, and they start as opposed to trying to keep it a little bit longer to develop a sense of trust. Like my parents actually love me (laughs) and they're actually rolling with my resistance. You know, they're trying to help me, you know, that trust factor. So if it gets cut off too soon, you know, there's always going to be the direct possibility at the end of this. But if you if you short circuit that too early, then the trust breaks away. And you know, here's the pattern. Every time we do this, mom starts out great. By the, the end of three or four minutes, she's yelling at me. That kind of pattern is what you want to try to break and sustain some sense of empathic, indirect communication as long as you can. I think that's the hardest thing as a parent is the start so there's two two types of behavior, right? There's the stop behavior where you want a child to stop doing something, which I think is it's much easier to parent 
stop behaviors. Um, you just respond, okay, well, if you don't stop, you go to your room and then that's it. I think the hardest thing, and I, at least I find this with my kids, is to parent around start behaviors. So whatever that is, you have to do your homework, you have to clean your room, you have to be nice to a sibling, you know, you have to get ready to go to school. So whatever the start behavior, because kids dig their heels in. And that's, and it's really hard to get a child to do something. It's much easier to get them to stop than it is to get them to start doing something. And kids are always testing you too, aren't they? Yes, they sure are. Especially when you have four of them. Some <laughs> right. of they take turns. <laughs> <laughs> they gang up on you. Hey? They do. Rob, what would you tell? So I, so my six-year-old being the youngest of four, she has learned to yell and scream to get her way. That's kind of her MO. And we're working on that, you know, stopping the cycle, removing her from situations where um, she has a temper tantrum. But there, there seems to be a point at which, you know, as empathetic as we are, and as much as we try to make this connection between, okay, we understand what you want. And it's not reality. We can't always give you what you want. You know, sometimes her requests are just unrealistic. And I don't know that it's developmental because she's sick. So she, sh I feel like she should be coming around and understanding more um, that she can't always get what she wants. But it, at some point, it seems that she just shuts down and it doesn't matter what we say or what we do. We just can't get through to her. So what would you recommend in a situation like that? Great question. So that's a disconnect between her and the rest of the family. And I would ask her, why doesn't this strategy work? Why don't you think this is good? Why doesn't it work with the rest of us? What's happening when you do this to the rest of us? So it's teaching a number of lessons. Number one, like you got to go inside, you got to consider the other people that are in this family dynamic. And then you have to figure out what it is that's bothering everyone else. You have to figure it out. I'm not going to tell you not to do it. I mean, that's the approach I would take, which is try to work on the breakdown that is created by that type of behavior and her discovery of what that breakdown is. So in other words, trying to get her to understand um, her impact on the rest of the family, basically. Yeah. And, and basically, it's, it's the parents saying that method of communicating does not work in our family. You understand that? It doesn't work. So I want you to understand, you tell me why you think it doesn't work. That's where I would head with that in terms of discovering the disconnect that it creates within the family dynamic. Well, that's kind of interesting because you're not actually asking her why it works or why she thinks it should work, you're asking her why it clearly doesn't work and provide the reasons why it doesn't work. I think that's an interesting perspective because if you're asking that question, then really all, all there is is a bunch of answers why you shouldn't be having that behavior, right? Yeah, yeah. And the other thing is it's a, it's a control style, right? So there's like six different ways you can control uh, people around you. And one is physical and one is emotional. And that's an emotional control style that needs to be altered through maturation and development, as opposed to a cognitive or a thinking control style, which is like basically indirect communication is a thinking control style. And so that step 
of moving from emotional control by yelling and screaming into cognitive control is a developmental step that needs to take place. And that'll move move that particular strategy to a different approach and a different level. Good. Yeah, that makes sense. Trying to just move the needle from, because that's what she wants. I mean, she's the youngest in a family of with four kids. So of course, she doesn't have just two parents. She has three other people telling her what she's doing right and doing wrong and what she should do and what she shouldn't do all the time. So I can see your point about the control makes sense. And the only way she knows how to control is emotionally because she's in that emotional part of her brain going back to the brain development. Absolutely. And she's developed it, a habit. Yes. It's, it's all it is. It's, it's like a uh, sort of a, a thing that she's going to have to learn that the habit doesn't work anymore and that there's a new kind of strategy to develop a different habit. I think the point of this one is you're going to develop learned limitations and you need to develop learned elevations. This is all this is. This behavior right now is a learned limitation that gets something. There's a trade-off and there's some payoff, or there was in the past. And you get to a point where if it's disturbing the family and the family dynamic can be the feedback loop and the child can discover why it disturbs the family and then the learned limitation can be shifted over time. So that's what that indirect method is is all about. So Adrian, from your perspective, how do you think indirect communication and motivational interviewing could help parents deal with their kids' overuse of technology, which of course is one of the things that we are most concerned about today? I think what's really important for parents to understand when it comes to technology, and I'm just thinking there's, you know, there's two different pieces with this. So a lot of homework is online. So going through these steps um, with a child who's doing homework online and trying to get them to understand that, you know, so, okay, so you're developing empathy. So you're saying, okay, we, I understand it's hard for me to control um, my device use because we just know the way these devices are developed. And, you know, I have important things that I have to look at on my phone And so, you know, we understand, I understand it's hard for you to do your homework online and just do your homework and not be pulled away and distracted by communicating with your friends and using it for entertainment and then helping them to understand that, right? So would that be the disconnect? Yeah, that's the disconnect. Or another way to say it is the trade-offs that you're making. And I think trade-off is even a softer word to say, you know, if you could get especially a teen that has that level of, of a higher brain development to reflect on the trade-offs and be able to discover what they are. And there's so many of them that it's almost like in, in this day and age, you know, most kids don't even know where to start, but you can begin to uncover some of those trade-offs because you can't get really into what's creating the trade-offs with them. But we do know that the speed of change is is involved in tech media and consumerism, that combination, that power pack that they've made is involved and all of these different things what the entertainment industry is doing. There's a ton of them and it's become, I think it's become relatively normalized, like this is the way it is today. So all the other kids are doing this, all the other kids are spending 90% of their time in the entertainment world are nine hours of the day 
with entertainment and 93% of that time is in entertainment. That's what we all do. That's the way it is today. So the trade-off becomes the thing. And if that's what you're all doing, let's talk about what the trade-off is for doing that. You know, what do you think it is? Why do you think it would be difficult to get a job if you didn't know certain skills? What do you think those certain skills are? Why do you think that it's a 10-year window to master something? How far along are you now in your mastery of anything that is your passion or what you love? Where are you on that journey? What trade-offs are you making, you know, with your phone along that journey? Those kinds of questions to get trade-offs exposed on a personal level in their own life. Well, I'm thinking thinking this through too, in any situation, not only with um, when it comes to devices, but just looking through these five steps, um, enrolling with the resistance and then avoiding argumentation and staying empathetic, working to shift the perspective. Um, and then once, once you have the child thinking through the situation, you go back to the, back to kind of that empathy piece too, you know, we're on a team together, we're working together. Mm -hmm. Um, and that's where that fifth step comes in, right? So support whatever is uncovered. So you're right. So you're saying, okay, now that we're on the same page here, what can I do to support you? It's, it is really hard to get your homework done. Um, in the summer when you want to be outside, or it's really hard to get your homework done when you're distracted by your device. You know, how can we come up with a plan to help you get this done now that you see that this is, you know, what you need to do? What can we do? And coming up with a plan that way. Yeah, that's beautiful. And then at the same time, you're establishing trust. Like you went through the whole sequence without moving into a direct kind of confrontational mode. So that becomes learned. That's a new discovery with regard to a process like, oh, you know, and what's going on at an unconscious level is I can trust this. Somebody's not going to explode on me because I'm not following the rules, for example, but I can trust the process. So the more you can get through that in an indirect way with all five steps, you know, the more trust is developed in the process itself. And that is one thing I try to say to my kids a lot. You know, we're on the same team where we have to work together. You know, I'm here to help you. I'm not trying to get into an argument with you, you know, yeah, those kind of things. We're on the same team. So a lot of this seems to be, I guess, depending on the age of the child, but moving that child from a place of, as you talked about, Rob, emotional reaction or emotional control into more of a cognitive setting where they can actually think through what's going to happen when they make choices. And, you know, we talk about choicefulness. Obviously, the idea of making choices is inherent in everything we do all the time. And they make choices and we want them to make good choices. So having them intellectually understand the consequences or moving them toward intellectual understanding of the consequences is really part of the direction here, isn't it? Yeah, and it's exactly increasing choicefulness because if you think about the three pieces of choicefulness, going from awareness to developing your abilities to using your abilities to be able to control the world around you. So if we go back and we take the example of somebody that is operating, like Adrian's example, if the child is screaming or using that form of control to get her way in the family dynamic, 
there's all three of those steps are not in place yet. So go back to step one, which is awareness, make her become aware of what it is that doesn't work. That's step one. So she can change her ability and move it from emotional to cognitive over time and learn inner communication, be learning how to communicate with herself, and then take that cognitive control that she learns and move it into controlling things around her and the world around her, as well as her own emotions and behavior. And that's something that I think is really, really missing now. We talked about it last time, like how this inner control is being uh, usurped or jeopardized by outer control. So it's, it's harder, much harder now. And indirect communication is at least a doorway in, but it's much harder to get that inner control piece in place developmentally than I think it has been in the past because of all the noise on the outside. So Wayne, you just said this was helping a child develop their cognitive abilities. And I think if we use this within a family and we are modeling this behavior and we're getting into a conversation with our children instead of telling our children what to do, they'll then take this process. It will become intuitive to them. And when they go to school or they're playing on a team or they go to work in the future, they're going to know how to work through an argument or a situation in a meaningful, thoughtful way. Yeah, I think that's absolutely true. And if you think of some of the things we obviously talk about here a lot, which is tech, media, and consumerism and what's happening in children's lives, when we're talking about control, I guess, is it a good thing to point out the fact that, you know, many times I think kids think that they're controlling their lives. They're going to determine what entertainment they watch. They're going to be determining how much time they spend. And this is something that they think they're controlling the situation and that they're aware of at all. But the reality is because of persuasive design, which we've talked about, so much of that has been taken away from kids and us as well. I mean, is it a good strategy, do you think, to actually make children aware of persuasive design and, and how their devices are actually controlling their behavior? I mean, do you think that's a positive thing? And the question goes to, to both of you here. Yeah, well, on my end, I think it's a positive thing. I think that at a younger age, developmentally, it's not going to resonate very well just because the style of control that they'll be using at the younger age is going to be immature, and they're not going to be able to reflect upon a higher form of control. The first piece of that is it's a developmental thing. But it's not a bad idea to introduce inner outer because that's a dichotomous kind of form of control that is almost generic. It's an umbrella. So you can introduce the idea that people do things that they want done, and you have to be careful because they have their agenda. And you have your agenda, which is your inner ability to be yourself in control. And that idea of inner outer is a very simple idea. It's just polarized and it's easy to get early. And then you can play upon that, those two words, easier than cognitive control, ethical control, emotional control, the forms of control. But those can be introduced developmentally according to the age and stage of the child. So now you are at a place where cognitive control can get you more in the world and in the future than emotional control. Let's talk about what that is. So when the child's ready for that, that's a different conversation. But all six forms of control, 
by the age of preteens, you can be introducing the whole idea of there's six ways to control the world around you, and here's what they are. And we could do that at another time, which is give examples of each form of control. And Adrian, do you have a thought on that as well? We always encourage parents to talk to their kids about persuasive design because we really do feel like kids don't want to be manipulated. And so explaining to them how companies are using not only the, the products, the actual devices, but also the software to keep kids using them, we think that's really important for parents to share with with their kids. And then going back, I know in the last podcast, we talked about self-reflection, but going back to that idea too, is, is telling kids once they've, once they've engaged with the device or a game, asking them, how does it make them feel? So my daughter, even from a really young age, I want to say she was maybe in second or third grade and she was playing a game on her iPod called Minion Rush. This was before I really got into studying all of this but she was playing a game called Minion Rush. And she said to me that she didn't want to play the game anymore because it didn't make her feel good inside. And we've done the same thing with our son, who's 11. We got an Xbox for Christmas because we don't want the kids to feel like devices and this type of stuff is the the forbidden fruit. So we've introduced it and we talk about how it makes them feel. So we got this Xbox for Christmas And he was playing it one Saturday afternoon um, and I was sitting on the couch watching him and he was getting very frustrated and getting really angry. And I said to him, okay, so how does this make you feel? Is this something that you want to continue doing or would you rather go outside and play soccer, hit the ball around? So I think definitely telling kids about persuasive design and then asking them how it makes them feel is really important. Yeah. And you don't have to use the word persuasive design, do you? I mean, you don't have to use that. You can just use the word manipulation or something like that, or people wanting to get you to do things that maybe you don't, as you say, don't make you feel good or that you don't really want to do, but you don't understand that they're trying to do this. So yeah, you don't have to be technical and actually use the term persuasive design at an early age. I think the other thing you can do is is use the concepts of uh, your story, their story. And when you get to their story, what is their story? You know, like, what what do they really want? You know, you can get into persuasive design as a technique to make lots of money for major corporations. That's their story, making lots of money by having you become addicted to their particular products. What's your story? So, Rob, what you said earlier about the inner and out of con- outer control, I think kids definitely understand that. I was in the car yesterday, it was a rainy day here and we were going to the movies. And one of the girls who was with us, we had a whole bunch of kids, has her own device. She's 12 and she was playing a game. I think she had handed it to another child in the car who was playing and a pop-up ad must have come up and she said, oh no, no, don't click on that. They just want to take your money. So it was interesting that, and, and somebody else in the car said, oh yeah, I heard that. So they understand the concept, you know, and it can be something simple like that. Right. Yeah. And kids do understand that. Mm -hmm. It's a a really simple concept. And I've asked my kids before too, why do you think games are developed this way? Why do you think you never lose or you never win? Why do you think the game's developed? It's to keep you playing. And why do they want to keep you playing? Because the longer you play, the more money that they're making off of you. And kids say, oh, yeah, that makes sense. You know, why else wouldn't I win or why else wouldn't I lose? And I think the next part of that is to try to have a child understand that's the consequences of why they're keeping them in. 
but what are the consequences to the child and the future beyond the fact that, yes, they're using my time? What's happening to them internally and that's changing their future behavior, that's changing who they want to be, who their identity is? So it goes beyond just, yeah, you know, they're going to try to keep me on there so I can make some money. Yeah, but okay, keeping that you on there to make some money, what is that going to do to who you are and what you want to do in your life? And that's back to- Trade-offs. What's the trade-off? Exactly. You're absolutely right. When my kids turned nine, my two oldest kids, my parents bought them each an iPod. And we, my daughter has her, she texts her friends on it. But my son, we haven't given his back to him. And he keeps asking and I keep saying, well, when you can show me you're responsible enough to handle the iPod, I will give it back to you. And one day I sat down with him. He was, you know, really bugging me about it. And please, why won't you give it to me? And, and I said, you know what? I am so proud of who you are as a person and how you are able to entertain yourself. You come home from school, you have a snack, you go outside, you play soccer, you play with your siblings, you read a book. During playdates, you take out a board game, you play Monopoly, you play Clue. You do all of these things on your own. You're getting great exercise. You're using your brain. You're developing your and strengthening your reading skills. I don't want you to come home from school and get sucked into an iPod either texting your friends or playing a game. I think the way that you are now is really important. I don't want that device to change you. Well, and that's interesting what you just said. And I think it's something that parents do hear, but it's worth repeating here. And that is that you do have a lot of control over how these devices work, or certainly a level of control. And when you're talking about awareness in choicefulness, a parent needs to have the awareness of what that device is their child's using and how they can put controls on there and restrictions on there so that some of the, some of the worst stuff that's happening on there is not happening to their child. And I mean, that's a technical thing, but it's something that uh, is in the awareness category and that's for the parents to figure out. What do we want our kids to make sure that they're not having access to? And let's take the time to understand the device enough to put some controls on there. Right. And the apps that kids are using, I think, you know, going back to this, asking yourself questions about what is the motivation of the app developers Mm -hmm. and thinking about, you know, there's one app called TikTok. I think we might have talked about that in the last episode, but TikTok is one of those apps where parents say, oh, it's this fun app where kids are basically doing karaoke and they're producing videos of themselves. But the truth is when you're giving your child access to videos that anyone in the world can upload, you really are losing control over what your child is seeing because people from all over the world with all different types of values, are uploading whatever they want. Um, And it's the same thing with YouTube as well. So I think parents definitely need to educate themselves on these apps and to think critically about, okay, what is the motivation of the app developer? And what is the motivation of the people who are uploading videos to these different apps? And that's pretty much why we keep the inner IQ as a framework, because it allows you to, to go back into nine different dimensions or different qualities and be able to say, is the app promoting this? Is it promoting this? Is it promoting weak communication? Is it promoting mastery? Is it promoting self-management? So you you have sort of a frame of reference to keep going back and looking at a checklist, if you will. 
And I think that's a great place to leave this episode. So I think the takeaway today is we really want to encourage parents to use uh, motivational interviewing and indirect communication as a way to communicate with their kids. And we think it'll be very effective for you doing so. And add to the toolbox that you have in order to connect better with your kids. Now, in the next episode, Adrian will be back with us again as we finish up our overview of the NRIQ by talking about it communication, or as we now like to call it, T communication, which stands for transcendent communication. And that's all about how we relate to something bigger than we are, something beyond us. For example, our relationship with nature. And just a reminder that you can listen to us and subscribe to our podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, CastBox, etc. So until the next episode, thank you so much for listening and live above the noise. Hello, everyone. If you'd like to get our email update about new episodes, tips and tools, and all the latest information, please sign up for our Noise Watch update on our liveabovethenoise.com website.